<clears throat> okay, hear the word of the Lord, Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 27. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and will be different from the previous ones. And he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may we be changed by our time in your word. May your spirit be in the um, proclamation of the word and the hearing of the word. May each and every one of us uh, be changed because of time spent hearing from you through your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So this vision of Daniel has a contrast between those two great visions. So on the one hand, vicious beasts. And on the other hand, the victorious God on his throne. The first time we ran through this passage, we focused on the Son of Man. Person and work of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. We saw him lifted up coming on the clouds of glory, quoting from Daniel 7, Jesus did just before he was accused and convicted of blasphemy and sentenced to death on the cross. Last week, visions of beasts danced in our heads. We were swimming in the sea of all of the monstrous things that are coming. We get this idea of, of the, the human Population, tribes, tongues, and nations, and out of these rise these beasts that Daniel tries to grab the most vicious images that he can to describe what he sees. Something like a lion, like a bear, ribs, bones hanging out of his flesh, devour, you know, just these nothing short of troubling monstrosities the nations of the world coming out. Ultimately, it's emphasized that these beasts have fiery destruction as their end, and we peaked a little bit at the, the truth of the victory of God. So today now, conveniently, the third message, three, for Daniel chapter seven, all of our nice numbers. Um, we are actually have a greater task today than we had last week. Because last week, when we think about beasts and nations and peoples, we can at least relate because we are creatures of the 
dust. We can appreciate pride because we know the pride in our own heart. We see these things. These are creaturely things. These are things of the earth. How then are we supposed to get this idea of the God who comes seated on the throne Myriads upon myriads singing his praise, like heaven gets ripped open for us, and nothing short of God and his majesty giving the throne to Jesus Christ, seated in the heavenly places. The promise king is ours to wrestle with. Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. Now, if you and I had even uh, just a hint of how precious this passage is, we would be like Isaiah. And when we're done reading the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, we would say, woe is me, I am undone. That's the scene that Daniel gets. That's how powerful it is. And so we will, through the power of the Spirit in his inspired word and in us, spend some time just enjoying the majesty of our God, knowing that this is the end of our study of the six chapters, God's message to the nations. Um, And what I would argue is the most significant uh, six chapter passage of the Bible to understand the kingdom of God and therefore our King Jesus in the Old Testament. So rules of interpretation that... We see from the text that we need to remember as we jump into here. Every detail, the first rule, everything that we see going on is answering the question, whose God is God? Whose king is king? So whose little g God is the capital G God of the universe? Whose King is king. Who is the king of kings? Who is the king of glory? The Lord mighty in battle. This is the question that is asked in the book of Daniel. And the details that we get in chapter 7 are answering that question for us. Number two, every detail included boasts of the sovereignty of Yahweh. So, He's not even answering and asking that question anymore. Just comes in with the magnificent Lord of hosts. Everything that's going on is how great our God is. So the first rule is, whose God is God? Question mark. Our God is God. (coughs) Yahweh is God. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. These are things that we know as we read into the text. Number two, Yahweh is sovereign. Period. End of story. Number three, every detail is both historically accurate, but future looking. Greater fulfillments to come. So looking at Daniel 7, those beasts rising up out of darkness Rebellious creatures, boastful mouths, right? Attacking the saints, given dominion, devouring all that would come. The final beast, just again, just to make sure that the contrast that the scripture 
paints, we are appreciating. This fourth beast is so terrifying, Daniel can't even describe it. Imagine that. A beast comes and you can't even go, oh, that's like a whatever. I can't even tell you that. If I said there was a beast that was like a gorilla, you would at least have some kind of shape as I piece it together. Like a lion, like a leopard, like a bear, like an eagle, like a snake. On and on and on, we compare. He can't even compare it to anything on earth. It's that terrifying. Not only is it so terrifying, it's so destructive that it is crushing everything. And this is how terrified Daniel is of this beast. After he's told the interpretation, he is told the interpretation that the kingdom will be taken, all dominion will be taken from these beasts. This final beast will be taught, you know, be done away with. And then the kingdom will be given to the sons and the saints of God, where the dominion will last for an everlasting dominion. Even after Daniel hears this, he goes, that's great. But I'm still wondering about that fourth beast. (laughs) He can't get past this fourth beast that is crushing, crushing, crushing under his Feet. Gotta love it. Gotta love this beautiful, beautiful uh, contrast that's getting painted for us. So whose God is God? Right? Whose God is God? So we get to see something here. About the court that's in session. We mentioned it at the end of the last time we looked at this passage, but we're going to keep coming back to it now. And even more so that these kingdoms are given dominion and then he takes it away and then he gives it to the saints. We have to keep remembering these things because we are earthly creatures and it's hard for us to remember And he has to tell Daniel again, Daniel, this beast is given dominion by the sovereign one. And the sovereign one takes dominion away from him. The most terrifying thing you could ever imagine. It's the kind of truth that if you and I were hiding in a bunker in Nazi Germany protecting Jews and the Nazis were blowing everything up around or you're in the middle of Poland and the Blitzkrieg is everywhere, you would read this passage and go, dominion's been given for a time to this wicked tyrant and it will be taken away from him because our king reigns. That's the power of this passage. That's the power of this truth. And it's all powers. Who is sovereign? Our God. Who is God? Our God. And you love this. I love it. The sovereign one says these lesser dominions will serve and obey. And obey. That beast will obey the command of God. Satan 
will obey the command of God. God gives Satan a command today. Satan does it completely to the satisfaction of God's command. There is no challenge, period. Okay. When we think about how historically accurate this is, there is four identifiable sequential kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, Rome. We can see them. We can know them. They're identifiable. They did their thing. Both visions of kingdoms trace all four of these kingdoms. Chapter 2 was from the eyes of the prideful Nebuchadnezzar, and it still looked like the kingdoms were kind of nice and magnificent. Chapter 7 is the heavenly perspective. They're beasts to be crushed and tossed into fire. But both visions end with the ultimate conquering and perfect, perfect victory of Christ. And in fact, also it says that dominion is given to the saints. It's given to the saints. And this is an aspect where it's easy to forget that the rule of Christ is to be done as he gives authority to his people. And it's easy to forget because we could be like those dominion people who think, I have the power. I declare! You know, the <laughs> I've been listening to that guy's reformed wiki or whatever he is on YouTube, and, he, and his little advertisement in the middle, he does the sign from Kenneth Copeland. And, here! Grow! <laughs> no, like... Declaring, you know, declaring, no, 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 no. I don't get power to, clearly I still, I mean, maybe I haven't had enough faith to grow my hair back. Still being left from me. No, no, that's not the kind of power and dominion we have. But when Christ is going to accomplish something, he is going to use his body to do it. Why have you been saved by grace through faith? He has saved you for what? For good works, which God has prepared in advance that you should walk in them. He could do anything he wants. Our God is in the heaven. He does what he pleases. And for some reason, when he comes to reign on earth right now, he does so by giving authority to the saints. Wow, powerful, amazing. And all this we learn from these, we see these Kingdoms that are real kingdoms, real things happen. And then yet, in Revelation chapter 13, we see a seven-headed beast that just so happens to have the same amount of heads as the, as the beasts in this vision. We see this beast looking like the beast of this vision. We see this beast doing the same kind of things, trampling under, overpowering, crushing, all the raging thing that he does. Just as the Ancient of Days sets up thrones, pay attention to that language, Ancient of Days sets up thrones and presents the kingdom to the Son of Man in Revelation 4 and 5. We have the one who sits on the throne presenting the scroll to the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, surrounded by thrones. The authority 
of God. There's something happening, and it's all connected to understanding the kingdom of God. And we know there's richness in here that we can only begin to understand. And hopefully for the rest of our lives, we'll grow in maturity and understanding of these things until Christ is appearing before us face to face. With all of that, some observations from the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Two in particular. Two in particular. And we just pray that we can do at least a little bit of tiny justice to how wonderful this vision is. First, there's the imagery of the blazing fire and the clouds of heaven. As you see in our text, Daniel chapter 7. Kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Fire. Enter the Son of Man later. The Son of Man, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. Okay. This chapter and description of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, it's going to be in our little toolbox of the best passages that defend and explain the deity of Christ from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from anywhere. The connection that we see here is going to be some of the best we have. So here's some examples. The most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament in reference to Christ is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That is quoted specifically by even Christ himself. How could David say to my Lord? You know, who's greater than David? Me. And then we know later they reference this very often, this idea of Psalm 110. So if you want to better understand Christ, you want to better understand what it means for Christ to be king and God and Messiah and all of these things, meditate on Psalm 110 and pay particular attention to Psalm 110, verse 1. Right. Elsewhere, John 8, 58. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. How did the Jews take that? They picked up stones to kill him. So they weren't very happy with Jesus's claim. So if they weren't happy with Jesus's claim, we should pay attention to it. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. He is claiming to be better than Abraham. They are claiming to be Abraham's children. Spend time in John chapter 8 and the I am statement there. And then look at the story of Abraham and see Jesus is claiming to be better than Abraham. Born before I am Yahweh himself. John 12, 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of Christ. John 12, 41. 
So Isaiah chapter 6 and the revelations that Isaiah gets, we are told in John chapter 12, verse 41, that Isaiah is seeing Christ. And now here, Daniel chapter 7. Here in Daniel chapter 7. Now, little Bible quiz. When God revealed his name, Yahweh, to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, how did he do it? A what? A what kind of bush? A burning bush that had fire but was not consuming. A fire. What do we told our God is? A consuming fire. So Exodus chapter 3. God reveals his name, Yahweh, to his people in a fiery, burning bush. Now, when God established the nation of Israel as a people belonging to Yahweh, he leads them out of Egypt. And when he leads them out of Egypt, how is he leading them and protecting them initially from Egypt. He protects them from the Egyptian army, his presence. And then he leads them through the wilderness. And how does he do it? With a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of clouds by day. When God reveals himself to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and makes the covenant with Abraham and reveals that he himself is taking the penalty for his people... He is a burning, smoking fire pot that passes between the beasts. In Exodus chapter 16, when God establishes the Day of Atonement and the need for his people to have a sacrifice, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. <clears throat> and this right here, just in the first five books, are all the references of God and a cloud. The cloud of his glory. The cloud of his presence. Overshadowing. So what do we have here? We have both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man Put on the deity side of the line. This is none other than that which is for God and God alone. So when Jesus says you will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud of glory, as we were talking about his claim to deity there, specifically, he's identifying himself with the identity of Yahweh. So whatever else is going on this in this image, Whatever we're seeing in this throne room, the throne with fire flowing out and the Son of Man coming in a cloud is none other than God language. <clears throat> Applied to two persons. Almost as if built in, it's almost as if, I'm suspicious, that built in to Genesis through Malachi is the teaching that our God 
is far more complex than we can imagine. That our God is somehow one, but triune. That there are persons to the Godhead that creep out in the Old Testament text and we can see. It's almost as if God is doing that and that the people were held accountable for not recognizing Jesus for who he is. All right, so that's the first observation from here. The second observation, the second observation is that the heavenly court is in session. The heavenly court is in session. So it's a common mistake that we make. Because remember, we are creatures. We are made from the dirt. We're bound for dirt. And we think... We think that when court is in session, we're going to speak. Think about, think about the audacity and the pride of even us who think that we're going to step into the throne room of God and present our case. What? <laughs> what? When Isaiah saw this, he said, what was me? The only, he could just, uh, he just like, it's like a moan, right? Crying out and the hot coal sizzling. It's like, ah! Think about the boastful audacity of those people who in their foolishness say, I'll do whatever I do right in front of God. You know, I'll never forget the guy dancing on the car in front of um, in front of Planned Parenthood in Medford. If God is real, strike me dead. He's dancing on the car. This just flaming homosexual guy out there doing that. You know, you better be thankful God's not listening to you right now. Because he will strike you dead and your mouth will be shut before him. But let's, you may not know this, but Egypt is an interesting thing to look at because so much of what God is doing about building his people is pulling them out of Egypt. And Egypt, funny enough, actually has a concept of the afterlife that is far more like what people in America think of than the real true God of the universe. So when Egypt describes the afterlife, everything they do is blasphemy. So rather than understanding the complex God who is triune but one, they make a pantheon of gods, just like Greece, just like Rome, just like the Norse gods, like the Hindu gods. That's what people do. They have this idea that there's something going on with God. So then they take, rather than give honor and glory to the one triune God, they create all these other lesser false gods that are basically just superpowered humans that are just as defiled and wicked as humans are. They just have superpowers. And they worship them. Nice little demonic twist. However, here's what happens in ancient Egypt. They believed when you died. You died, and then you went and met Anubis. Little jackal-headed dude. And Anubis and his acolytes, they would usher you to the scale that's sitting in the 
courtroom of Osiris, Lord of the Underworld, who has 42 judges sitting on thrones, and you stand before the scales with the feather of truth on one side and your heart on the other. And you have to confess that I did not do bad things. You've got to be truthful, of course, because you're standing before the, the little feather of truth. I did not do this. I did not do that. I am pure. And you give your confession. You go on and on. This is this whole little, little ceremony that they go through. When you're done, they take your heart and they place it on the scale. Now, a heavy heart is a heart that's heavy with conceit and sin and pride and not worthy to enter in. If your heart is heavier than the feather of truth, if you present your case and you fail, the alligator god eats your heart and you cease to exist. Little alligator head, whatever it is. How convenient, though, you cease to exist. You start seeing the reasons why Christians believe what we believe about things like hell. No, nobody other, nobody has any concept of the afterlife that matches what the Bible truly teaches about such a thing because nobody wants to deal with an eternal consequence if they're wrong. They cease to exist. <sighs> Alligator God eats the heart. If the feather, the feather of truth is heavier, if the heart is lighter than the feather of truth, they discuss among the thrones and then they usher them in. So in this scene, you get to present your case in the underworld representing your life and many lives will be found worthy of entering in because of the works that they have done and many lives will not and they will be consumed and die and cease to exist. So here's what's sick and twisted is that this is what Americans think far more the afterlife is going to be than what the Bible teaches. They have no concept of the holiness of God and what it means to stand in the courtroom of God. They think they're going to present their case. And they've got the little, they've, they've been listening to either the little angel or the little demon more during their life. And as it rolls out, God weighs it and decides some are good enough to come in and some to go. Isn't that what almost everybody says in our evangelistic encounters? The reason why they have no, they have no respect for the holiness of God. Not only do they have no expect respect for the holiness of God. They don't understand what happens when the court is in session. The book is open and it's, your name's in the book of life. Your name is not in the book of life. It's done. There's no presenting a case. There's no pleading. There's no begging. Because on the one hand, people will be terrified on their face before the throne room, terrified for eternity, for hell that they know is coming. And they're going to know instantaneously as those words come out of their mouth, as we've said before, Jesus Christ is Lord and they're going to be done. And at the same time, they're going to hate God so much that they would not want to enter into heaven to be with him. That's what happens when the court is opened. That is it. So that's the image that we get of the kingdom of God in Daniel chapter 7. 
know, I'm going to introduce an idea here that we're going to have to deal more with, especially as we get to Daniel chapter 9 and the timing of all of this. But I would like to present to you the case that this idea of the kingdom of God, and I'll use it interchangeably with concepts of the day of the Lord, was inaugurated, happened fully and started at the cross and will be fully consummated when Jesus returns. And I'll explain what I mean by that in the in the little title this morning. It's the idea of it's already here, but not yet fully realized. All right. So if you allow me to spit through this stuff, there's a case to make. And I'm just going to mention some verses and I'll tell you when we need to land on one and look at it, because a lot of these will be familiar to us. Okay. The most convincing aspect to me that something special is happening, some connection between the first coming of Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension in the cloud of heaven and his coming back in bodily form has to do with the teaching of the day of the Lord. We've talked about this multiple times, but we need to piece it together. Here it is. First, Joel and Amos, the scriptures, the books, Joel and Amos prophesied about a coming day of the Lord that was coming quickly. And they were prophesying before Israel was taken captive in Assyria. So they were prophesying day of the Lord's coming. 722 BC comes, Israel's taken into captivity. Isaiah and others come on the scene and they're prophesying about judgment that looks like the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. And yet they use the day of the Lord phrase. In Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, the day of the Lord is used and called the day of doom for the nations. Speaking specifically of God using Babylon to judge Egypt, and that is day of the Lord. Joel and Amos talking about the destruction of Israel in Assyria, day of the Lord. Isaiah and others talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, day of the Lord. Ezekiel referring to the nations being judged, day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.10, speaking of the second coming of Christ, states that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which is the language that Jesus has used about the return of the Son of Man and the bridegroom coming and people being ready. That's about his second coming, his return. Right. Now, specifically, the day of the Lord as it applies to what Christ has already accomplished. Malachi 4.5 says this. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's what Malachi says. This is done in the 400, like 400 BC. This is the last prophecy given to Israel before it's silent until the time of Christ. I want you to think about that. This is the end of the final prophecy given to the people of Israel before Jesus comes on the scene. And it is that the day of the Lord is coming, and I'm going to send the prophet Elijah before that great and terrible day. Mark 1.1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
also Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared, preaching the baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The New Testament authors quote Malachi saying, Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord to prophesy the coming of that day. And we are told that that day is Jesus. <clears throat> and then the most convincing for me is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And here's where you could turn to Acts chapter 2. Please. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And I know it's a lot of content. These are verses that we tend to mention a lot. And we just want to see this big picture and get the big ideas of what's going on here. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches, takes his stand with the 11. I just love how this begins. It's like Peter takes his stand with the 11. <laughs> how wonderful is that? And he raised his voice and he declared to them, Men of Judea, and then he speaks. And verse 17, he quotes from the prophet Joel about the coming of the day of the Lord. And it shall be in the last days, God will say, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and even on my bond slaves, on my pour my spirit. The moon will be dark and blood and all of this stuff is quoted. Okay? Men of Israel, Peter continues in verse 22. Listen to these words, Jesus. So he is preaching the message that Jesus, who was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, poured out his spirit, was the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 which is day of the Lord. So may I suggest to you something? That at the cross of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God was inaugurated and it was done so by day of the Lord. When the Ancient of Days looked to the Son of Man and gave him dominion, when the one seated on the throne handed off the scroll to the Lamb that was slain, when he does this, God poured out his judgment on the nations once and for all. We're not Catholics because we don't have to come back to that pool. It's been done. All the rebellion before Christ all the rebellion after Christ, all the rebellion of God's people, all the judgment that we deserved, the reason why God didn't let the fiery serpents bite them to death in the wilderness, the reason why God didn't let them starve to death, didn't thirst to death, the reason why God didn't let Babylon swallow them up completely was because Christ <clears throat> took the day of the Lord punishment on the cross when he enters into his kingdom. The reason why you and I aren't struck dead for our sins. The reason why the boastful sinner today who will repent tomorrow is alive tomorrow is because Christ swallowed up death for that person. Christ took day of the Lord judgment, purifying his church and taking it 
upon himself at the cross. And at the same time, the punishment for the nations is guaranteed. Day of the Lord judgment, courts are opened. Both man, woman, child, everybody living or dead will stand before Christ. And for his enemies, you will be made a footstool for Christ. You will be crushed and you will be doomed to hell. Guaranteed. Done. At the day of the Lord moment at the cross. You will either fall upon the rock, be undone and be born again, or the rock will crush you, the rock of offense, and you will be done. And there's reasons why this is so important. And I know it's it, it's big and it's complicated and we can't help but think of all of our little specific understandings of what it means for the end times and the word eschatology, which means the study of the last times. And we try to get all these specifics and whatever the specifics are, we'll each probably have a different understanding of all the specifics. I know I do amongst all of my brothers and sisters who are ministering in the Lord. We tend to differ on a lot of things, but we have to get the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is that Christ is king today in his kingdom today. And I'm, I've asked the question, and I'm just gonna I'm not even gonna fully answer it because you're gonna this whole thing is my answer to it, but I'm not gonna be specific to answer it right now. How is it that the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension, which enabled him to pour the spirit out on mankind, how is that called day of the Lord? But second Peter chapter three says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night when Jesus returns. Day of the Lord language is used for both events, the first and second coming of Christ. So because of that, that has to impact our understanding of the kingdom of God and the last times. Whatever you come up with, you have to be able to answer that question. And then here it is. Here it is. In Revelation chapter 5, when Christ is given the scroll... When Christ is given the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, we are told what? He's worthy because he overcame. How did he overcame? How did he overcome? Verse 9. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood a people. That's how Christ overcame. In Revelation chapter 12, it's because of the blood of the Lamb that you and I can overcome. You and I get to overcome Satan himself because Christ overcame. It's all the blood of the lamb. Philippians chapter 2, Christ emptied himself when he came to earth in the incarnation. He humbled himself by becoming obedient on death on the cross. God highly exalted him and God gave him the name above all names that every knee will bow. Why? Because of the cross. And then here it is. Matthew 28 says that all authority in heaven and earth have been given unto me, Christ says. And in the Gospel of John, we are told that the cross is where Christ is exalted. Where Christ is exalted. So,
Here's why, even though these truths are too great for us to fathom, we have to, have to pray that the Lord will help us take hold of them. Because today, you either believe Christ is king or you believe he is not. You believe Christ is victorious or you believe he's not. And this is important because you and I will forget that Christ is king when tomorrow is difficult. You and I will forget that Christ is king. We pray this when we say your kingdom come, you will be done. Matthew 16, 18 says this, that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates don't move. Christ's church is advancing. And already, not yet. The truths of the kingdom are already here, but the kingdom isn't fully realized in our life. How do we know this? Are you a new creation in Christ or are you not? Yes, the answer is yes, you're a new creation in Christ. Do you ever act like an old creation? But I thought you were new. Are you seated in the heavenly places? Are you seated in the heavenly places right now? According to Ephesians, you are. But wait, you're right here. Have you been sanctified? Are you a saint? Which means sanctified, set apart one. Are you, have you been sanctified by Christ? Yes. But are you being sanctified? Yes. Why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 would he say, you've been washed? Homosexual? You've been washed. Drunkard, you've been washed. Covetous, you've been washed. Idolater, you've been washed. Reviler, you've been washed. But he says that because they still act like they're not. Victory in our life is understanding that somehow... You are victorious. You are seated in the heavenly places. Christ is king. He is reigning. You're with him in glory, sealed with the power of the spirit, promised for an inheritance that no rust or moth can damage. It is already fully yours in Christ. And yet, not yet fully manifested in your life. Why? Because one of two things are going to happen to finish the job for you. You'll either die and face him, and then the work will be complete. Not because it's not complete or sufficient, because remember, God doesn't have time. To add one more layer to this, God doesn't have time. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He's not bound by math. He's not bound by anything. So he can declare it. He can have the rock be Christ, taking the punishment for his people, pouring water out for Israel. And in God's mind, Christ has taken the punishment that they deserve. Because God's outside of time and there's no question with it. And so you and I, when we sin, we lie. And all liars have their place in the lake of fire. When you and I sin, we lie. Because if you're in Christ, 
and you choose to sin, you're living like that sin is better than Christ. But he's not. It's not. And we deserve, <laughs> we deserve hell for sinning after we know how good Christ is. And yet when Christ died on the cross and satisfied the wrath of sin for you and me, he knew that I would choose to sin after I knew that Christ has paid for my sin. So even that was wrapped up at the cross. So we have to somehow live as people who are new creations in Christ, being made new in Christ. The words of the gospel, the words of the gospel, the power and save, but our life lived out reflects what Christ has done for us. And so we have to live like the victorious king. And for our encouragement, here it is. When Christ returns on the clouds of glory in bodily form, in righteous judgment and fury, here's what will happen in Revelation chapter 6, 15. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. People who hate God would rather die again than face Christ. They'd rather die a hundred deaths than to face the wrath of the Lamb. And yet that's the face that you and I look forward to, um, the sweet and present return of our God. And so the kingdom of God is here Kingdom realities are ours in Christ, for Christ's glory, and yet we long for the day and our eyes are fixed upon when when it's fully consummated in him. So, Heavenly Father.